Um, I titled this workshop, uh, Writing Letters of Support for Trans and Non-Binary Individuals, Increasing Comfort by Increasing Knowledge. Um, I have found that almost universally, people are really, really interested and have a strong desire to write letters, but get kind of caught up in being fearful that they don't know what needs to be in them. Um, they don't necessarily know what questions they need to ask. Uh, there's a lot of, of fear around, I don't know. And so um, doing the best they can will often refer people out to other organizations or other people in practice. And so my hope is that by the end of today's training, um, you all will feel like you have certainly A, more information than you have now, but but B, the, the information that you felt like you were lacking before so that you could provide these services to your clients um, and, and, and keep people in as opposed to referring out to other organizations. Um, so our starting point is sort of thinking about the historical model of medical and surgical care for trans individuals has been based upon the premise that trans experience is one of mental illness. The result of this belief system is that trans individuals are continually required to prove their gender to a professional prior to receiving medical care. So in this workshop, I'm going to specifically talk about um, informed consent as an approach um, to writing letters and assisting people with decision making around their transition. I think it's important to acknowledge that you cannot have informed consent coexist with people being required to participate. So those two things sort of cancel each other out. So understanding that people are required to engage, how do we, how do we use um, informed consent as much as we can within the limitations of that requirement? So the agenda, it's a lofty agenda. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that we'll get through everything. Um, so we're gonna start with understanding the history. It's really hard to understand the present and what are the requirements, um, how they came to be if we don't have an understanding of the history and, and um, where, where much of this came from. I'm going to be defining informed consent in the context of writing letters of support. Uh, a lot of us uh, think about informed consent as a process of um, understanding the overall therapeutic relationship. And while that's important, um, I'm a big advocate of understanding informed consent in the context of people are coming to us essentially for an evaluation to receive a very specific diagnosis and then a recommendation for a specific procedure or procedures. And I think that's a different sort of way of doing informed consent than maybe we typically do it. Um, we spend some time rethinking gender dysphoria. Uh, gender dysphoria is obviously most commonly understood as a diagnosis that describes a set of symptoms. And while that is true, uh, it is not the primary way that people are experiencing gender dysphoria. Some of your clients may be talking to you about things um, and they are using uh, terminology or language that is other than gender dysphoria. And so I want to sort of create a, a space for us to like rethink uh, about how gender dysphoria shows up so that we can best advocate and write letters of support for folks. And I think it's a really important piece that we have to understand, have a, have a baseline understanding of the procedures that people are seeking that we're writing letters for. Talking about realistic outcomes and prospective recovery timelines. Um, if somebody wanted me to write a letter about a medical procedure that I had absolutely no information or understanding about at all, I would feel very uncomfortable and very uncertain. And I think that the majority of people who are writing letters for folks are probably um, maybe don't have a lot of experience or understanding of the surgical procedure. So we're going to go into that. Obviously, um, the caveat is that I'm not a medical provider or a surgeon, but I happen to have a, a robust um, amount of knowledge about those procedures. 
Um, what are the non-negotiables? What's required in letters and what is not? I think that people often err on the side of too much information. Um, letters of support really, even for cases that people would maybe describe as complex, really are, you know, page and a half, two at maximum. Um, that there is a lot of information that's put in letters that are that's just not necessary. And um, I'm a big believer that people should be able to retain as much privacy about their experience as they possibly can. Um, and then addressing some of the things that people I think get a lot, uh, feel a lot of concern around. Um, what about folks who are precariously housed or have, you know, significant mental health issues? Um, and and maybe some of you know that that uh, folks with untreated or undertreated gender dysphoria. Um, have higher rates of being precariously housed, um, significant mental health issues, drug and alcohol, substance use and misuse. And so we have to figure out ways to get those folks treatment for their gender dysphoria as parts of the stabilizing treatment for other aspects of their life. And then finally, we'll round out the day um, with actually providing multiple examples of letters that I have written and then also case examples. So that's the goal. We're gonna build in a couple of breaks in there. So. Um, Three hours is just far too long to, to not get a break. So with that, let's go ahead and, and jump into the history. So Harry Benjamin is sort of seen as, as the godfather of trans-related care. And he first came into uh, the, the landscape in around 1948 when in San Francisco, he was asked by a colleague of his who was a psychiatrist to see a child who was assigned male at birth but wanted to become a girl. Um, and, and everyone who was involved in this child's care uh, were very hesitant and disbelieved that she you know, knew who she was and knew what she needed and, and really forced a lot of psychotherapy and a, a lot of um, reparative therapy and interventions. And Harry Benjamin came onto the scene and was like, well, I don't know, let's see what happens um, and, and decided to provide her with estrogens, which was way outside the standard of care for adults and certainly outside the standard of care for youth. I bring this up because I think it's really important to think about that, that the trans care in a lot of ways started with youth care. And today youth care is sometimes seen as the most controversial. Um, and so I think just an interesting how history has evolved and, and moved away from um, understanding the origins of where this care came from. Um, uh, Dr. Benjamin followed this young woman for a period of time and then ultimately lost contact with her. And he has stated numerous times um, in his writings and books that he has written that that's one of his biggest professional regrets is not following and seeing where this young person uh, ended up. So Harry Benjamin was also one of the first people to really kind of call out the hypocrisy of the way that trans care is, is um, delivered. He said, allegedly transsexualism, although basically a psychiatric condition is paradoxically resistant to psychiatric help. Like this is a really important thing for us as mental health providers um, to understand that uh, even you know, back in the day with Harry Benjamin, he understood that mental health or talk therapy or psychiatric help in and of itself as the only intervention was not going to effectively treat people's gender dysphoria. And that there's been a lot of time and energy spent in people engaging in mental health as a requirement before they're able to transition and often not um, experiencing many positive results specifically around that talk therapy. I, I really strongly believe and I and I spend some time advocating that um, 
only providing talk therapy or, or uh, psychotherapy to people who have gender dysphoria and not advocating for medical intervention if they want it um, is actually causing harm, right? And we go to thinking about like um, something similar. Somebody comes in with a, uh, you know, significant physical injury and they really need medical intervention. And what we feel we need to do is talk to them for multiple sessions about how painful it is to have this broken arm. Um, and, and and that is not all that dissimilar to somebody who has untreated gender dysphoria being required to come in week after week to talk about um, the discomfort or the distress that they're experiencing around their untreated gender dysphoria. I think that there are plenty of opportunities where um, care can coincide, medical care can coincide with mental health and talk therapy. I think that's the best case scenario, uh, but I absolutely do not believe that mental health should be a requirement prior to somebody accessing care. And Harry Benjamin um, felt the same way back at the beginning of this care. And we move from Harry Benjamin to um, Dr. Laub and Dr. Fisk. And so these a couple of slides are um, Donald Laub, who they were both at Stanford University, who in the early 70s were actually providing trans care, including surgeries to adults. And in this paper that was published, uh, a rehabilitation program for gender uh, dysphoria syndrome by surgical sex change. In there, it says to change a person's God's given anatomic sex is a repugnant concept. Morally and instinctively, it is difficult enough for a surgeon to perform an amputation of an arm or leg. It is even more so to consider genital amputation and castration. And so thinking about like in the 70s, as, as this work is, this care was becoming more and more um, available in urban areas, coastal urban areas, the care was being provided with this lens, with the idea that um, it's repugnant, right? There's a lot of pathology and, and the delivery of services have, was built. This is the foundation in which it is built on. And I, I'm happy to say that in 2020, um, we are, are, are quite a distance away in some respects from this perspective in some areas, but there are huge swaths of this, this country that still believe in this sort of foundational place that's, that the starting place is that this is um, a pathology and a repugnant intervention for people. Explaining the need for gatekeeping, this is also um, from that paper. Certain older transvestite persons and certain effeminate male homosexuals tend to drift into the more socially and morally acceptable transsexualism. The accumulated social pressures after years of being stigmatized as a moral leper may cause confusion in the differentiation as patients from these other diagnostic categories begin to find it easier to achieve success in life when completely living as females. Okay, so this for me is like a hard stop of like, where exactly in the world are trans women less stigmatized um, than gay men, right? I mean, certainly LGBT folks have had to move through a substantial period of time in which um, there was oppression and discrimination and violence and isolation, absolutely. But I think that to postulate that it was more morally acceptable in the 70s, to be a trans woman. I think this, I think that's an interesting thing to, to assert. I have had the opportunity to have numerous conversations with older trans women um, who were either queer or gender non-conforming or non-binary in the times in which this was was written. And, and all of them have said that 
that that does not represent at all their experience in their life or, or their social sphere. But it still speaks to how um, the separate identities of gender identity and sexuality, which live on, on separate um, pathways for us, get crisscrossed over. That, that there's an assumption that um, effeminate gay men are trans women or that trans women are actually effeminate gay men and and there's just there's just no there's no validity to that at all so donald Lobb went on to say um it's hazardous a great mistake to surgically alter a person's sex upon his request as the only indication and i think it's important to note that the language in here the pronouns are are never affirming so he's talking about trans women but he will reference them with male pronouns and re reference them as men. And early on, there was little to no reference at all for trans masculinity, right? Um, and so it's important to kind of orient that the, the pronouns are incorrect, that he's talking about trans women. Anatomical reorientation to align a person's body with the gender in which a one to three year therapeutic trial has demonstrated success, judged by multiple criteria that we'll get to shortly, may only confirm a correct decision made three years previously. So there's something to sort of consider that I have these conversations today with people and with parents. I work a lot with parents that people want to come into this work, whether you're writing the letters or you're per performing the surgeries or you're parenting um, the child and they want to have a very specific relationship with certainty. And I think that it's a valuable place that we have a conversation that certainty for all of us around all topics is always um, something that we feel really strongly about until we don't, right? That's, that's how things work. I felt very certain about my first marriage until I didn't anymore. And then I felt very certain about that divorce, right? I felt very certain about moving somewhere. I felt very certain about that job, right? Certainty is always moving for us, but when you're trans or non-binary, Certainty has a different social um, value. It, there's, more, there's more pressure to have certainty around your gender dysphoria. And so people will engage in this, like, I'm 100% certain. And that squeezes out such beautiful opportunity for people to talk about the nuances of gender, right? That, that gender is always moving. If you're cisgender, where your gender identity aligns with your assigned sex, your gender identity is sort of a it just sort of, it is just a destination. You just get there and you just do your life. But for trans and non-binary folks, gender for a lot of us is, a, is sort of this constant movement of exploration and understanding, right? And movements and sometimes we will shift our language. Sometimes we will shift how we look, right? That we will shift moving in and out of different interventions. Um, but the, for all of us, um, sort of hindsight is the best indicator and, and data point for us to understand if a particular decision ultimately was the best decision. And this gets to be true for trans folks as well. And we need not be fearful of regrets, right? There's a lot of language around, well, what if somebody transitions and they regret it? There's actually a lot of data that says, well, that happens. Those numbers are actually quite low. And for the people who do end up transitioning again or detransitioning, which is how it's sometimes framed, is that those people report that it's rarely about a shift in their gender identity and it is much more frequently 
about sort of accommodating their environment. Maybe they lost their housing, their spouse, their children. They're having a very difficult time with employment. They're having a hard time managing their gender dysphoria. And so they will make different transition decisions, but will remain having a gender identity that, that led them to transition to begin with. Surgical complications are frequent. These patients may be difficult to handle. I think this narrative has sort of continued through the care for trans and non-binary folks. Social, legal, and moral complications are intrinsically associated with such a program. The surgeon's reputation may be brought into question or damaged. All of this is very much about like the surgeon. It's very much about the person who's providing the services and not so much about the people who are receiving the services. The responsibility of a surgeon to any of his patients is great and even more so here. It is our observation that a patient for this work must have been successful person in the desired gender, i.e. rehabilitation must have been achieved prior to surgery. A multidisciplinary and special program for the patient must be available to or organized by the surgeon preoperatively. There is hardly another situation in reconstructive surgery where a coordinated effort on the part of several disciplines is more necessary. I put this up because I think it's it's a it's an interesting thing to posit that um, there needs to be multiple people involved in a person's process through their medical transition. I think that if somebody is engaged and wants multiple people involved in their treatment team, I think that's really fantastic and wonderful. But there are a, a hordes of people who do not need that level of intervention. They do not need multiple people making decisions and observations and diagnosis and assessments for transition. The majority of people do not. And if you were looking at this care through a non-pathologizing and informed consent model, it will be easier to get to that place to understand why multiple teams of people um, may not be necessary for that particular person. But also I wanna highlight the idea that is that they have to be successful, right? That successful is subjective based on what criteria, how is one being defined as successful or not successful? Often, oftentimes, certainly then and even now, success is being defined not by the person themselves. Success is often defined by the psychiatrist, the psychologist, the therapist, right? Some other outside entity that is determining how that person should be, live, express, talk about their gender identity which creates a very narrow pathway in, in which people get to experience and talk about their gender. And of children, because, you know, Dr. Benjamin started this care with children. Um, there was a doctor named Green. Dr. Green has begun active psychiatric treatment of transsexual children in ages even less than six to eight years. Perhaps there's some hope for a non-surgical solution for this dreadful condition. Um, at this time, they were absolutely doing shock therapy for gender non-conforming children. Um, they were doing the earliest, most, most heinous versions of reparative therapy for kids as young as six and seven, eight years old. Parents were desperate to find interventions that would prevent negative outcomes of homosexuality or transsexuality at this time. And there were doctors who were actively engaged in not just providing this care, but recruiting children for this care um, and not surprising with horrible, horrible, horrific outcomes. So early on, um, part of the criteria for transition was called the real life experience. And there were multiple categories. It's really important to know that there, that, that uh, some people may be coming to you all with the false information that they still have to do a real life experiments. 
Um, and so they don't. There are some criteria that sort of speak to a real life experience and we'll get to that. But, but the standards of care and, and the requirements in which people must go through to transition started from this place of the real life experiment experience. So the number one was success in social, psychological, sexual, and employment spheres. One to three years of total cross-living and working in the gender of their choice. Um, I'm sure many of you can imagine that um, today and then, if you were a trans person and you tried to engage in uh, these do domains of your life without medical intervention, um, you are going to come up against some pretty severe barriers. Um, if you're an identifiable trans woman, the amount of oppression and discrimination and violence that you receive is astronomical, right? And so there's an expectation that as a trans woman, you were going to go and go to work and have relationships and be able to function sexually um, without medical intervention, without legal intervention. And if you couldn't do that, then you did not meet the criteria for category A in order to move forward with cross-sex hormones and um, surgical intervention. Successful interconfeminization. The ironic thing is, is that uh, in order to get surgery, uh, any sort of surgery, you had to have successful interconfeminization, but you also had to have one to three years of, of cross-living without medical intervention. There was a lot of hypocrisy, right? A lot of this was sort of depends upon who you're speaking with and who was providing the intervention, right? Um, at this time, you have to also remember that it was illegal to impersonate somebody of the other sex. Um, where, you know, much of the police violence that was the uprising of Stonewall was centered around the drag queens and the trans women who were, who were performing or expressing a female gender identity or performing through drag, which was illegal at the time. And so trans women were expected to live their entire life, all domains of their life, presenting as female, while that was also illegal. Um, and then also being able to access hormones, but they had to do it after a certain amount of time we get to sort of thinking about like what this meant is that like New York, Los Angeles and San Francisco were really the only areas that people were being able to access services. So if you lived anywhere else, not only would you have to travel to these coastal urban areas, but you were now navigating social transition without any of the assistance of legal, social or medical in your specific town or community or city. Um, and there are real repercussions to that. And so if you lost your job, which would be discriminatory reaction by your employer, then you flunked out of category A and you got, you got punted to category B. You had to have freedom from psychosis or significant sociopathy, like jail or drugs were the specific examples uh, provided. Um, not married in the gender of their anatomy. So in um, number one, you had to have success in your sexual sphere, but you could not be married uh, as a in the gender of your anatomy. So there was a lot of mixed messages. There were a lot of places where the opportunities for success were very, very, were quite small. Um, and this is an example, one of those. You had to be between the ages of 21 and 58 and no life limiting medical diseases such as diabetes or hypertension. If you did not meet category A, then you were punted to category B, which required you to have, and you had to move through all of these and then you had to go back through category A. So category B was employment opportunities via the vocational counselor, um, because if, if you did not have successful employment, then you were not able to move through and have surgery. So you could have job retraining 
um, a professional model who helps with grooming and counsels them in good taste and appropriate deportment, right? So performing femininity in a very specific way was part of the requirement. We got to sort of fast forward to one of the things that is a challenge and struggle for some trans women specifically, if they are, if their gender expression is not hyper feminine in a way that we sort of assume that trans women would want to express or experience their gender, those folks often experience a different kind of um, challenges when obtaining letters and moving through transition. And this is sort of like the foundation of where that came from. Um, and then this is the only mention for a trans masculine person, a football coach, physical therapist who directs a bodybuilding exercise and conditioning program. It's the entire mention through all of this of a trans masculine person. And so if you're going to do it, you had to be like a man's man. You had to like really do it. And you had to play football or do all of these sorts of things. And then obviously, you know, super healthy peer scrutiny via group therapy. Uh, that was absolutely part of the process in order for you to um, sort of create a vision of stability to be able to move through this criteria. Living with one of the successful post-operative patients for several months in order to form behavioral identification patterns and to learn tips for getting along in desired role, as well as how to obtain food, clothing, and shelter, right? So we got to teach you how to be a woman because you don't know how to be a woman because the premise was that you're not. The premise is that you're a man and you're becoming a woman and therefore you need to learn everything. And we have to change that and understand that people's assigned gender and assigned sex is what they're moving away from. That They're not becoming the other gender, they're becoming their gender, right? And so we have to sort of reorient how we even think about and look at this. A police department liaison to become acquainted with the impersonation laws, which I mentioned um, sort of at the height of Stonewall is, is where we really saw that. Professional attorney for assistance in various document adjustments. And finally, uh, an assigned counselor to provide advice regarding insurance, VA benefits, apartment rentals, and how to avoid being labeled by the surgeon as an excessively narcissistic, manipulative, or hysterical. Right? So we have to rethink. So if you did not make it through category A, you had to go through all nine of these pieces of category B, and then you had to go back through category A successfully again. And so imagine the amount of time that would pass for somebody to move all the way through both of these criteria. There's a criteria C, but the reality is, is that if you can't successfully move through criteria B, criteria C um, is, uh, it, if you move to criteria C, it's as, it's as good as saying you're not going to get surgery. Um, and so years would pass. Years and years and years would pass for people desperately trying to make their way through this criteria, the real life experience. And, and there is a rigidity to this that, that, again, it still surfaces today and people will be coming in to your care and asking for letters and you will see the traces, you will see the ghosts of the real life experience in the stories that they are telling you about their experience, right? That the transcript, in the transcript are pieces of this real life experience. And so it's helpful to be able to recognize that, to create space for people to not feel burdened by this historical model. So some of the things that uh, are positive about what causes trans folks, and this is almost exclusively describing trans women, a profound disturbance of the mother-child relationship can often be empirically demonstrated and postulated to be the causative factor. Um, that was from 1989, citation down at the bottom. Um, 
or a response to trauma in boys is said to represent an attempt to repair the defective relationship with the physically or emotionally absent primary attachment figure through fantasy. We still very frequently hear as trauma is a, um, a reason that somebody is trans or somebody is experiencing gender dysphoria. There's no evidence to support that at all. And it doesn't take into account that gender dysphoria in and of itself is traumatic. Experiencing gender dysphoria is traumatic. Um, and so it is certainly fair to say that people with gender dysphoria or are not cisgender are higher risk groups for being targeted and being traumatized. That's absolutely true. But the trauma in and of itself is not a causative factor for gender dysphoria. In girls, the motivation is the child's need to protect herself and her mother from a violent father by acquiring masculine strength for herself. All of these are absolutely completely and totally false but again, still show up in overt and covert ways in the clinical care of trans and non-binary folks. When we spend a lot of time trying to understand what caused something, we really miss the boat of what's actually going on for that person in the moment. So we gotta get away from what caused you to be trans and much more connected to what do you need to live your life in the best way possible um, to give you an opportunity to be happy, healthy human. So all of this creates a very cis heteronormative standards and it overtly states to take advantage of the means to self change considerable conformity to standards must occur. Thus behavioral modification a psychiatric modality is used to advantage as the patient rehabilitates himself simultaneously with his becoming qualified for the surgery. It was explicitly stated in the real life experience that was the goal. The goal was complete and total assimilation um, to be as cis passing as possible, right, to learn the rules and the codes of gender performance and gender identity. And if you didn't do that, or you didn't aspire to do that, it was unlikely that you were going to make it successfully through the program. There is a documentary, a short documentary, it's called Framing Agnes. And it's, and it's really beautifully done. And it is Zachary Drucker is the actress and there, I can't remember some of the, the men in there, but it is tapes that were taken from a real interview of a trans woman trying to obtain the letter of recommendation for surgery. And, and it's a really remarkable thing to watch because you can see today in it. And it, it, it is, it's a really remarkable, uh, the questions that are asked, sort of the pressure that she's feeling to answer in particular ways. And then outside of the interview, you are able to hear what she was really in thinking and feeling based on writings outside of the interview that she did. So what happened in the later part of the 70s is that Harry Benjamin um, really engaged in this work full time and, and sort of became in an in international sphere, sort of seen as somebody who was, uh, people leaned on for guidance around trans related healthcare. And so in 1979, the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Association was formally approved at the Sixth International Gender Dysphoria Symposium in San Diego. So Habigda, which is sort of what it used to be known as, was the precursor to what we know as today as WPATH. Um, and I also love that it was officially incorporated as a nonprofit in the state of Texas. I just, there's something about that that I really enjoy, right? Um, and then a little bit later that year, the first version of the standards of care were published. And the standards of care are really what kind of guide and organize from an insurance perspective and surgeon perspective, 
what is the criteria that someone has to meet and what needs to be in the letter. So from here on out, we're just going to sort of be talking about the standards of care is going to be the reference that's going to guide and inform how this process unfolds. So the diagnostic criteria for, for classic transsexualism, which is what the first label of this experience was, was a lifelong history dating from birth of a desire to be of the sex opposite to the present anatomy, chromosomes, and endocrine secretions. So this is the precursor. This is before gender identity disorder shows up in the DSM, okay? Manifested gender behavior patterns opposite to who is anatomical sex. Manifest female personality characteristics, repudiates men's clothing, wears women's clothing, desires to be rid of the male genitalia, is attracted to men in a heterosexual, not homosexual way, and no pleasure derived from the penis. So there's two things. Oh, and has non-delusional idea that he is actually female, but is in a male body. So there's two things that I want us to think about for a little bit later. Remember, new, no pleasure derived from the penis, sort of do a mental bookmark of that. And then also lifelong history dating from birth of a desire to be of the opposite sex. Those two things are going to be important as we move forward a little bit later. So when we think about diagnosing identity, homosexuality was first listed as a mental illness in the DSM-2 in 1968. In 1973, it was renamed sexual orientation disturbance, but the diagnostic criteria remained exactly the same. There was no change at all in the description of it. In 1978, when the DSM-4 was published, homosexuality and sexual orientation disturbance was removed entirely, okay? So we sort of think of a timeline. So that happened in 1978. Diagnosing identity version 2.0. In 1980, the psychopathological diagnosis of gender identity disorder first appeared. So homosexuality out, gender identity disorder in. It pathologized the disparity between anatomical sex and gender identity. And it wasn't until 2013 when the DSM-5 was published that gender identity disorder was renamed gender dysphoria. Not unlike homosexuality, the diagnostic criteria did not change, right? And so in 2013, there was a group of people who very strongly advocated to remove gender identity disorder from the DSM because it was pathologizing identity. And the identity of trans people is not pathology. Identity is not pathology. What the compromise of this profound work and advocacy from a group of people, uh, um, trans and non-binary and, and um, cisgender people was this compromise of like, we'll, we'll call it something different. We'll call it gender dysphoria as a way of describing the experience and not pathologizing the identity. But they were unwilling to go the extra step and change or re-describe any of the diagnostic criteria. And so for a lot of providers who've been doing this care for a long time, I will see letters um, and it will still list gender identity disorder even though we are approaching eight years since that has been removed. Um, and there will be people, if you have older clients, they may come in and they may reference themselves as having gender identity disorder also. Um, and we got to think about like, well, it was only 2013 that that changed. So thinking about informed consent, the Cornell Law of School defines informed consent as an agreement to do something or to allow something to happen made with complete knowledge of all relevant facts, such as the risks involved or any available alternatives. Sort of a universally understood definition of informed consent. 
So what does informed consent mean in the context of trans care and writing letters of recommendation for surgery? There was a group called ICATH, um, people who collectively came together and created a website and, and put out some publications about understanding informed consent in the context of trans healthcare. And this is from their websites. Transgender, intersex, and non-binary people are not required to attend therapy to receive desired gender-confirming healthcare. No one should have to go to therapy to prove their true gender or get permission to change their bodies. Transgender, intersex, and non-binary confirming people, non-conforming people can decide what is best for themselves and their bodies and when. Therapy is an option, but not a requirement for accessing gender-confirming healthcare. Those were sort of the essential principles of an informed consent to access to trans healthcare. Now, the, the problem is, is that there are very few surgeons who will provide any surgical intervention at all without a letter of recommendation from at least one mental health provider. There are few, very few providers if that client or patient is paying cash or out of pockets and not using insurance, they will not require a letter. Letters we have to understand the origin of letters, the people who are requiring letters are insurance companies, not surgeons, it's insurance companies, right? And if we understand who's requiring the letter, it can help us understand what kind of letter we need to be writing, right? Healthcare is a business and they are in the business of making money and you make money by denying care. That's how you make money. And so when we write letters, letters need to be act of advocacy and understanding that they are a pathway to get to the place where people can get informed consent. The only person who can provide informed consent about surgery are surgeons. That's it. Not insurance companies, not us as providers, not us writing letters. Only surgeons can do that. There is an, uh, an, an assumption that we share the accountability and the 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 legal responsibility with surgeons for people accessing surgical care, I, I significantly reject that premise. I absolutely do not believe that. My job is very, very clear. We're gonna talk about this in, in much more detail. My job is to assess for a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, assess for competency in that moment to provide consent for medical care, and assess do they have a general plan in place for post-operative care. It is way outside the scope of my expertise, way outside my lane to be talking about surgical complications, recovery times, that's way outside of my scope. And so if you get, have you've gotten kind of caught up in that, like this is the first place that I'm gonna say like, you can set that aside because that's absolutely the surgeon's job to talk about the surgical component of this care and these interventions. So some of the potential issues with the gatekeeper model, and I sort of think about requiring people to access mental health care for transition is gatekeeping. It gives somebody the power over somebody else's access to what they want. It puts the mental health provider in a conflicting role of both the healer and the evaluator, right? And, and many of us have been in this conflicting dual role before around other things, right? But, but it's, an, it's specifically uniquely challenging if somebody is coming to you only or specifically to obtain a letter to move forward in their medical transition. And during the course of that session or those sessions, something else is brought to light that is relevant to that person's overall well-being 
it will present challenges for them to feel comfortable talking to you about those things if they are fearful that you will not write a letter for them if those things are brought up, right? Because we, we cannot be in those dual roles. We cannot be a gatekeeper and also somebody who is in collaboration with the healing process that somebody maybe need to go through. And we're gonna talk more about some of the examples that come up. It further exploits the existing power differential that exists between the client and the therapist. It encourages a transcript narrative. I mentioned this. The classic one that I hear over and over and over is I've known since I was five. Five years old is the magical age that now people sort of attach to in the transcript. As I'm having a conversation about tell me about your gender journey or like when did you first recognize that your gender was different? Nine times out of 10, I'm gonna get five years old. And, and I will often, you know, have an exploratory conversation of, I hear that frequently as that being a really monumental age for people. Um, and there's also some people who just knew a little bit later uh, and, and sort of kind of create space for that person. If it's true for them that it wasn't five, which actually it's pretty rare that it's five years old um, when you create opportunities for people to talk about their actual experience and journey. But people are very fearful if they don't say five, because remember, you have to have a history from childhood. Remember that, remember that piece. It's codified that you have had to have known this since childhood. But the interesting thing is that today, more so than ever, when a child asserts a gender different than their assigned sex at birth, what we tell them is they're too young to know such a thing. But then on the flip side, we require people to have known their gender since they were five years old. Right, so there is, there's a lot of hypocrisy and there's a lot of moving targets. Whoa, I jumped on me. Um, it may impact the client's comfort with disclosing information that may be clinically relevant for their overall mental well-being. So some of the things that I have seen, like the primary categories that this happens is, um, is people are hesitant to talk about their ambivalence towards transition. And I think of ambivalence, I reword that as thoughtfulness, right? That any other domain, we really value people being thoughtful. We really value people thinking about things from multiple perspectives, considering multiple outcomes and multiple scenarios and situations. We put a lot of value on thoughtfulness, except around transition. Then we call that ambivalence. And we look at it as a threat to that person's certainty, right? And so there are a lot of things that people are contemplating, specifically adults, making decisions around moving through transition. Loss of community, right? I absolutely will share this, you know, one point. I absolutely remember I was 30 years old when I transitioned. I came out as a lesbian when I was 15. Being part of the queer community, female-only queer community space, was a remarkably positive experience for me. It was really, really wonderful, right? And by transitioning, I knew that I was transitioning out of that space. I was transitioning out of that community and it was the only thing that I knew, it was the only thing that was familiar to me. There was, a, there was grief, there was a relationship to the loss of something in order to move towards something. It certainly didn't cause me to delay my transition, but therapeutically, it would have been really amazing for me to have a space to talk openly and honestly about navigating both my need to transition and, and the deep grief and loss that I had about moving out of a community that was very familiar to me. But 
there wasn't space for me to do that because to talk about the sadness of, of losing a female identity and other people seeing me as female would have potentially been seen as a threat to my certainty of my male gender identity, right? And so, so that's an example of people sort of loss of community. Stress or loss of families or partners, right? People make transition decisions based on uh, the real or perceived loss of people. Um, the impact on their, their faith or religious communities, if they're potentially going to lose, you know, for some people, their faith and religious communities uh, is the, the bedrock of much of their life. And if transition threatens that, people make, may make decisions to delay transition or not transition entirely or transition differently. Physical and or emotional safety concerns, impact on employment, fear of needles, people really underestimate um, that people will delay transition because they're scared of needles. It's a real legit thing. Um, impact on fertility, for sure. Impact on genital function and sexuality. Transition outcomes. Uh, we don't often create enough space for people to bemoan and, and um, complain about unwanted aspects of transition. Uh, we sort of assume that people should just be happy with whatever they get. Uh, but most of us are actually not happy with whatever we get. Um, so things like hair loss, hair growth, impact on sexual function, genital changes, all of those things. So those are some of the things that it would be helpful in a clinical relationship if people could talk about as part of the thoughtful process around transition and are often fearful talking about in a gatekeeper model. Another thing that people are often fearful discussing or highlighting um, are their feelings of shame and grief as it relates to their gender identity and transition. And so researchers Tamara Ferguson, Heidi Ayer, and Michael Ashbacher found that specifically the term unwanted identity is one of the primary elicitors of shame. I have many clients, as do I'm sure many of you, who have a real adversarial relationship with being trans. That, that it causes them a lot of distress, it causes them a lot of discomfort and angst in their life, and they spend a lot of time wishing that they were just born a real girl or a real boy or a real man or a real woman, right? That there's often a lot of language around that. And, and because being trans is an unwanted identity, it elicits shame and grief in people that is specific to being trans. It undermines um, our vision of our ideal selves, which I think is also one of the things that you hear people talking about, real woman, real man, right? That, that trans people, some trans people see themselves as not being real rather than being performative um, and putting on gender performance of their gender identity, but never really being that gender identity. Um, grief for trans and non-binary folks, uh, it's complex and it's confusing because they're often navigating a loss of past and a loss of future. If you transition a little bit later in life, you will hear people talk about, I lost my 20s, I lost my teenage, I lost my childhood, um, I wasn't able to be my authentic self, right? But then there's also simultaneously a loss, a fear of loss of future. Um, will I ever be in a relationship again? Will I ever have a career again? Um, will I ever have children? Will I ever see my children again? And so people are occupying both a loss of, of past and a loss of future. And some of those things are real and some of those things are stories, right? Um, but the feelings and the emotions associated with are, are significant and profound. And if you're in a clinical relationship and people are not talking about this, um, that's a really important thing to, to consider and think about like, then what are you talking about? Sex, sexuality, and sexual practices. 
This is one that is also often skipped um, and, and intentionally not discussed in the clinical relationship as it relates to accessing letters for surgery. So remember early on, one of the diagnostic criteria was that you were not allowed to have pleasure derived from your penis, but also you had to have sexual, successful sexual relationships. So you had to figure out that very fine line between those two things, right? So if you're a trans person and you have dysphoria, but maybe you don't have genital dysphoria specifically, at least maybe not in that moment, maybe you have chest dysphoria or facial dysphoria, or you have some other physical dysphoria, right? Um, or maybe you don't have genital dysphoria where you hate your genitals, but you just feel like having different genitals would feel better. But maybe it's not a distress model. Maybe it's an opportunity to feel better, but you, you cannot report that you hate your genitals right, then people get fearful that that's not, it's gonna preclude them from meeting the criteria. So they may be hesitant to disclose involvement with the kink or BDSM communities. I see that frequently that, um, that it is kink and BDSM communities are, are tend to be sort of a generalized statement, but tend to be more open and welcoming to trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming bodies and experiences and identities. And as I said, that there's fear if there's no general genital dysphoria that they will be seen as not really trans, right? Trauma, there's fear that abuse or trauma will be used as the reason for someone's gender identity. It overlooks that gender dysphoria is traumatic and it implies that something must have caused someone to be trans, again, pathologizing identity. Fluctuating symptoms of gender dysphoria. So one of the things that I talk a lot about and I feel very strongly about is that we need to move away from a distress model. Right. Currently, people are required to meet a certain level of impaired functioning to meet the criteria of a diagnosis of gender dysphoria to therefore be able to move on and access treatment. The problem is, is that we simultaneously have this idea that if people are too impaired, they have to regain stability before they access intervention. And, and we sort of put people in this double bind. And what happens if you manage to find a pathway where you're not with experiencing debilitating dysphoria, do you then no longer meet the criteria of gender dysphoria as a diagnosis? What if we instead looked at this care as um, harm reduction? What if we looked at this care instead of saying, why instead of making you experience significant levels of depression and anxiety and suicidality and all of these other things that meet this very subjective set of criteria for the diagnosis, what if instead we said, let's give you access and see how you feel with that, right? That it takes a tremendous amount of time actually for irreversible changes to happen with hormones, much, much longer than people think that it does which allows people to have an experience of having a different hormone in their body as part of their process. It's an informed consent process. How can you have information to understand what you need if you're not giving the thing that you need to understand, right? And so um, there is a, a piece of this where we can create opportunities for people to have gender euphoria and bypass significant pieces of gender dysphoria if that's how we wanted to deliver the care. The symptoms and distress often associated with gender dysphoria can change sometimes by day by day or even hour by hour, environment by environment, right? So somebody can be at work and have a certain kind of dysphoria and have a very different kind of dysphoria at home or in their friendships or in their personal relationships or dysphoria that people experience when they're completely by themselves, right? Dysphoria is not just dependent upon social interaction with people. Dysphoria is also experienced in the, in the private sector, in the private sphere for people. So here's some available means uh, online to describe 
uh, these experiences. Um, my bar, let's see if I remove. Me telling myself my dysphoria is fake and I'm fake trans for the third time this month, my dysphoria. So that was, because it's being recorded, I thought I would put a line through it. Um, but I hear this version all the time or my dysphoria lessons for minutes. I'm not trans. I'm going to have to come back out to my family as cis. I'm actually a girl, aren't I? I'm such a trender. My dysphoria comes back. Oh yeah, that's why I'm not cis. Okay. And then this final one, face dysphoria, voice dysphoria, body dysphoria, social dysphoria, not having enough dysphoria, dysphoria, right? That we've created this idea that you have to meet these sort of markers, these arbitrary markers of like, you're trans enough, you have enough dysphoria, but not too much. And this now has been integrated. I hear this all the time in groups that I'm running where people will be like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go to group because I'm not trans enough, right? Or I'm not dysphoric enough. Right, that we that, that this not enough permeates all of us and all society, but there's a specific way that it like really, really isolates trans and non-binary people around not being enough or the wrong kind of some particular thing. And certainly history, um, you know, has has contributed to creating that narrative. So there's a lot of history. There's a lot of available reading. Um, there, Harry Benjamin published a book. Um, it's available as PDF, downloadable, and you can print PDF. It is a remarkable, remarkable, excuse me, remarkable read. As you read through it, it, it will feel at times that you are reading something published in the last five years in the sense of like, what is the same, what has not changed, and will also create opportunities for you to identify what has changed, what is different now, right? But it's, it is, it's, a, it's a great foundational book um, from sort of the pioneer that started this work and it's free. Um, I will, on the break, I'll get the exact title and put it in chat for people. So I wanna do this, I don't even know what time it is, 2.19. So I wanna do this workshop uh, or this portion of a workshop that I do somewhere else called Rethinking Gender Dysphoria. So there's a process that trans people go through, anyone who comes to understand their gender post-pubertally, which is gonna be, I think the majority of people that you're working with, people in this room that you're working with, with the exception of a couple of people who are working with youth, that there's a process of coming in. And that coming in process happens often without the awareness of parents, partners, therapists, and friends. But it is, it is the bedrock, the formation of how people come to understand and recognize that their gender is different. And so these are some quotes that I want to share from people who have talked about this process of coming in before coming out. I learned what trans meant through YouTube. I knew how I felt, but I didn't know where there was a term for it. I was basically just trying to Google what I felt. A light bulb went off in my head and I thought, this explains all the issues I've had as long as I can remember, right? The, if you're having an experience and you don't have the language for it, it's hard to create meaning and understanding around it. And it's also really easy to sort of continually invalidate or gaslight yourself. Or the other that I hear is that people were like, I just thought everyone felt like that. I had no idea, right? Because I felt like that everyone did and no one talked about it. So I just thought that's what everyone did. And that moment when you recognize that your experience is not the most common experience of it around you, it can be sort of discombobulating and people will then begin to search and to understand what's going on for them. But YouTube, Google, things like that, where people are trying, they can privately access information to understand what's going on is a fundamental process for most trans people understanding their gender identity. Um, 
Then the next step is, I have to move my, my bar, sorry. Um, I started using they, them pronouns in author bios, bios and social media profiles around 2015. Slowly, I told internet friends that I was non-binary, maybe leaning a bit transmasculine, and dabbled with new names and considered changing my appearance. Every step felt good, but I, always, I was always terrified of going further. I always felt like I was being too demanding, self-absorbed, and noisy about it all. The idea of being annoying seemed intolerable. It took months and months before I told my partner I was trans, then several more months until I told my real-life friends. I didn't tell my family for another year after that. It took half a year refreshing the website for a local genderqueer group before I decided I was ready to attend. I'm envious of the trans people I know who come out of the closet at breakneck speed, running with confidence toward the truth, but I am not like them. Sometimes it takes years for me to realize how I feel or what I want. And then once I realize it, it takes me another year to gather up the courage. What I really appreciate this is that this person is describing that coming in process. What's going on, this is the name for it, right? And now I'm gonna slowly incrementally make my way forward leading up to the disclosure about this information that I now know about myself, right? And, and during the coming in process, and this person speaks to it a little bit, they, we as trans people, we have to answer many of the questions that we are presented with when we disclose, right? Because we've done a bunch of work coming in, right? And so we're here, right? We've done, we started here, but now we're here. Like we are, we are much further along and then we disclose and we're disclosing to somebody who's now at the starting point that we were at months or years ago. Right. And so the questions they're asking of like, have you thought about this? Maybe this is a phase. Maybe this is because of trauma. This is just trendy, your friends. Right. We've already had to do all of that work as part of our coming in process. Disclosure and coming out is also um, e e for the for a lot of trans people, it's unavoidable. Right. There's no way people are going to use different names and pronouns. If we don't disclose, we need different names and pronouns. And not every person is hardwired in a way of being very out about something that is remarkably private and personal. Right. And so when we think about the criteria of like social transition and real life experience, that's assuming that everyone has the temperament to live their lives in a way that is fully disclosed everywhere they go. And that's just simply not true. Right. And so when people disclose their trans, really, it's it's an it's an act of asking for help. I need something. I have this information and now I need this next thing. And that next thing may include medical intervention. It may include just a name or a pronoun or it just may mean that that person needs somebody to hear, validate and witness this thing that they've been struggling with for a long period of time. I want to make sure that there's a lot of space for us to recognize and realize that not all trans people want to medically transition. Absolutely 100% true. People who do not want to medically transition tend to have zero obstacles accessing medical transition because they don't want to access medical transition. So, so it doesn't make a lot of sense to talk a lot about how do we increase access and also talk about people who don't want to medically transition. But I do want to just sort of put you know, put a name to that I understand that, that there are a lot of people who are not interested in medically transitioning and their gender identity and their experience is 100% value. It is not a competition. 
five years ago, I pretty much knew, but thought it didn't matter. Nobody was going to get it. Everyone was going to think I was being ridiculous. I would think to myself, clearly I am a liar and, and attention seeking, and I'm deluded as well. And I will regret all of this, even though I want it so badly. And even though, even though I've been thinking about it and writing about it for years, I'm definitely making it all up. And obviously I need to shut up about it. And one day I will realize I was wrong. And when I realized that I was wrong, I will also come to see that I did irreparable harm to society by speaking my truth. I've never thought a single trans person was faking it or doing it for attention other than myself. You can, you can hear in this person's description of this process, the history. You can hear the invalidation. You can hear the trauma. You can hear the grief. You can hear the shame. You can hear all of that. And when people are moving through the coming in and coming out process, they're also carrying all of that stuff with them. And so when they arrive at your office to begin the evaluation and the assessment for them to meet what can sometimes feel like an arbitrary or unidentifiable set of criteria to get you to write a letter for them to get what they need in order for them to find happiness, they've done a lot of work to get there. And while Lobb describes trans people as difficult or challenging patients, he did not consider all of the factors that go into people's experiences that land them in those medical providers' offices, right? And so if we can have an empathic response to where people are when they come in to see us, that's great. We should be doing that clinically all the time anyway. But in the context of a writing a letter, you absolutely do not need to spend an extraordinary or maybe any time at all going through and validating somebody's gender history, assuming that they have not already done that work themselves. You can completely alleviate yourself of that because I feel very confident that somebody did not have a, wait, I think I'm trans, eight hours later, a big coming out party, and then the next day sitting in your office. That's not real. That's a, that's a factitious, an arbitrary made up timeline by people who are absolutely opposed to access to care for folks, right? So what will be pertinent is for you to understand their coming in and coming out process, bear witness to that story, create space for that story that maybe has been held silently to have like take up space in a room, but not as part of validating or proving something, but much rather as like healing and saying, maybe you've held this story in silence. I really wanna give it life, right? I really wanna give it a space to exist and live because it's an important process that you went through. Right. And so creating space for, for people to tell you they're coming in and coming out story can be very helpful. Did some research in grad school about access to care and and what came out of my research. And this was 2013 was this very thing of coming in before coming out. And so I think it's helpful for for some people to see some numbers associated. So out of 239 people, one of the questions I asked is, at what age did you identify your gender was different than your assigned sex at birth? The youngest was three, the oldest was 65, but the average age of identifying was 13, which is, it's pretty common. It turns out it's not that five years old that people tell you. Um, and then the next question was, at what age do you disclose? The youngest was three, the oldest was 66, but the average age of disclosure for these 239 people was 27, which meant that there was a 14 year difference between age of identifying and disclosure. Also known on average, people came in for 14 years before they came out. Now, if you're working with an 18 year old client, it's possible that they came in for 14 years, probably not, right? But they certainly came in before they came out. 
And if you're working with the seven-year-old clients, you know for certain they spent a lot of time, years and years and years coming in before they came out. And if you can remember that, that you're writing letters for people who have already done a tremendous amount of work, it allows us just to start somewhere different, right? Which is much more helpful for us and much more helpful for the client. So factors that may influence people's coming in and coming out. Racial or ethnic identity. Racial or ethnic identity impacts all aspects of people's lives everywhere all the time and forever has, right? And so that is absolutely true for trans and non-binary folks as well and they're coming in and coming out process. Age plays a huge role in this. What you understand at 14 and how you even begin to get that information is different than what you understand and how you get that information at 55 or 60, right? And if you were coming in during the time in which Google was not a thing, how you got your information was very different than if you're a 14 year old today Googling on your phone or asking Siri to do the work for you, right? And so age plays a significant role in people's understanding of their gender, how they talk about it and decisions about transition. Family structure, religious identity or affiliation, geographic location, access to information, perceived family and peer support, designated gender at birth. We have to understand that the differences, the experiences of trans women or trans feminine folks are so significantly different than those of trans masculine folks, right? In society, trans feminine folks are often on the receiving end of violence, overt discrimination, um, overt uh, targets of, um, uh, I lost the word that I was gonna say. Um, it's, a, it's an aggressive act. Trans women, there's an aggression towards. Trans men are often ignored, um, invalidated, isolated, right? That it doesn't elicit the same reaction that trans femininity does because trans femininity is still seen as a betrayal of masculinity and we still have a lot of preference for masculinity, specifically white masculinity in our society. And so if you're betraying white masculinity, people are going to have a different um, uh, personal response, but when we look at like the political aspects and social aspects, all of that stuff is targeting trans women. Um, gender identity, sexual identity, and certainly media. Okay. So again, thinking about as we move forward, this piece around age and access to information. So what dysphoria can actually look like for people? It can actually look like depression or anxiety, disengagement, isolation, self-harm, suicidality, anger, sadness, exhaustion, poor attention, lack of motivation, emotional immaturity, poor self-esteem, negative body image, low tolerance for frustration, poor sleep hygiene, easily distracted, poor academic achievement, poor family relationships, crying, and the list can go on and on and on. But if we approach our clients only from the diagnostic criteria of them wanting to be the other gender and knowing since they were five and hating their penis, we're really going to miss out on the actual experiences of people. These are the symptoms that people are often coming in with. These are also the symptoms that if they are seen as being out of control, it would, it would preclude somebody from being able to access transition. So you have to have them, but not too much, right? Um, which again, sort of creates an opportunity of like, well, what if we eliminate the distress model entirely? What dysphoria feels like? Being transgender is hard. It's not all sunshine and roses filled with transition photos and achievements. It's staying up in the middle of the night or playing all of your thoughts and fears. It's deciding which bathroom to use while in public. It's having to out yourself to medical providers, lovers, new friends, coworkers, and often everyone you meet. 
It's answering questions about genitalia, how and when I knew that I'm trans. It's losing your loved ones, being viewed as a sin, a freak and circus show. I'm not your fetish, your experiment, your experience, your willingness to try it out. It's looking at your parents in their eyes and seeing their disappointments. It's the acceptance by your friends who meaning well, thinks your transition is cool, so they tell everyone about it. It's dealing with the pit in your stomach when you have to show your ID and your appearance and name don't match the documents. It's the painful surgeries and the financial blow of affording the medical care needed to transition to feel comfortable in your own skin. It's about being stuck in the middle between your birth sex and your authentic gender. It's going through puberty all over again, but this time in lightning speed with no guidance but your own personal experience. It's the rushing to the mirror in the morning, hoping to see your outer reflection match the person you know to be on the inside and being disappointed that the process is slow. It's building a support network through social media to replace the lack of acceptance from those you love. It's not even so much about others' acceptance as is the struggle to love yourself when the world tells you otherwise. I think this person does a good job describing the experience of gender dysphoria. And I, and I always highlight this because this person is not speaking about anything that is in the diagnostic criteria. When we are meeting with people with gender dysphoria, we need to be interacting with the experience and not the diagnosis. We need to be having conversations about the experience and not the diagnostic criteria because the experiences of gender dysphoria is what we are trying to help people treat with intervention. We are not trying to help people treat the diagnostic criteria, right? So it's really why I drive this home, that these are the things that people are trying to decrease or eliminate from their lives. Um, and then for the sake of time, skip over that. Um, as well. So thinking about genders for you over the course of transition, I think this is an important thing because you may be coming in contact with people who are wanting their first surgical intervention, or maybe they are wanting their third or their fourth or their only. People are, are sort of navigating medical care in a variety of different ways. And so understanding the ebb and flow of gender dysphoria um, as it relates to people you're coming in contact with. So people have to experience some level of gender dysphoria before they can access medical care. And this is for a, um, post-pubertal, I think it's this trans mask person. Yeah, trans mask person, right? And so they have a lot of gender dysphoria and they come in and they start testosterone, right? And what testosterone does is it creates a hormone honeymoon. Changes start happening. You start like paying attention to your muscles and facial hair and all of these signals and signs because testosterone elicits physically noticeable things that you have a decrease in gender dysphoria noise, right? And so you go through this period of sort of euphoria. But what happens is that often pretty quickly um, and sometimes more significantly before than before starting hormones you have chest dysphoria and this for transmasculine clients may be the point of contact for some of you right that this person has been on hormones now for a few weeks or a few months or maybe years and they are experiencing debilitating chest dysphoria they're wearing a binder or multiple binders they're not interacting with friends. They're not having romantic relationships. They're not physically active. They're not living a significant portion of their life because their chest dysphoria is preventing them from doing so, right? And so when you're sort of thinking about that person's gender history, you have to also take into account the ebb and flow of gender dysphoria. That hormones will facilitate some changes, but they will have no meaningful impact at all on chest tissue. So requiring somebody to be on hormones for many years before getting chest surgery is nonsensical. It's gonna have no meaningful impact whatsoever. And there's a lot of people whose chest dysphoria is so significant, they want chest surgery before 
being on hormones. And that's a completely reasonable approach because hormones will not impact chest tissue at all, right? So if somebody is being able, is able to have chest surgery, um, then we often see with the combination of hormones and chest surgery, transmasculine people tend to have, as it relates to gender dysphoria, a significant decrease. Certainly they may have height dysphoria, they may have body shape dysphoria, they may have other dysphorias, but those two significant around voice, um, physique in the sense of like more masculine body structure and chest tissue um, tend to be pretty profound interventions for folks. It's pretty common for people who transition in adulthood to not experience really significant genital dysphoria until about four to five years into their medical transition. And, and then, you know, maybe people will choose to have genital surgery, maybe they won't. People who are transitioning in um, adolescence are almost always hyperfixated on having genital surgery as soon as they turn 18. It's a huge difference than adult transitioners and people who are transitioning in um, as teenagers. So for trans women, similar model, gender dysphoria coming in, they start estrogen, but the problem is, is that estrogen does not undo what testosterone has done. And so you don't see as significant of a decrease in gender dysphoria for trans women. And what you see is pretty quickly debilitating genital dysphoria or facial dysphoria, right? So facial, facial feature dysphoria or genital dysphoria is akin to what chest dysphoria is for trans masculine people. Because hormones, estrogen will not have a significant impact, an impact at all on either of those things, it makes no sense for somebody to wait multiple years to have these interventions, right? The only thing that there is, it, 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 there's clinical relevance to delaying a tiny amount is breast augmentation for trans women, because breast development will happen with estrogens. Probably there's a, large, a lot of people who won't be satisfied with the amount of breast development, but it is one of the only places of the physical part of transition we're saying, well, why don't, you know, let's see what you have in six months is actually a reasonable statement. Anything else, it's not a reasonable statement for people accessing transition. So similar to sort of the up and down of, of gender dysphoria for folks. All right, so let's get down to sort of the nitty gritty of actually writing letters for people. All right, so to whom it may concern, which I feel like is an appropriate sort of starter place. So as I mentioned earlier, standards of care is really who's guiding how we're writing letters, right? And so they set forth the criteria. It's important to know that standards of care are intended to be flexible in order to meet the needs of trans people. They are not rules, they are not laws, they are simply suggested guidelines. Insurance companies, surgeons, and often therapists treat them as if they are like written in stone and the standards of care police will come and get you if you do something outside of their suggested guidelines. They will not, they cannot, it is simply meant to be a tool. If you need to do something that is outside of what the standards of care suggest, that is your right as a clinician if it is clinically appropriate for your clients. So I will send these, I'm not gonna go through them explicitly. So standards of care lists the different competencies that people need to have um, to work with folks with gender dysphoria. All of this, and again, you'll have these in the slides. All this basically says is that you have a, a master's degree, you were supervised, that you know how to use the DSM, et cetera. Psychotherapy is not an absolute requirement for hormone therapy and surgery. This is from the standards of care. It explicitly states they do not recommend a minimum number of therapy sessions prior to hormone therapy or surgery. 
a minimum number of sessions tends to be construed as a hurdle, which discourages the genuine opportunity for personal growth. It also um, speaks to mental health professionals can offer important support to clients throughout all phases of exploration of gender and expression and possible transition, not just prior to medical interventions. And clients and their therapists differ in their abilities to attain similar goals in a specified time period. So meeting with one, somebody one time only and writing the letter is not only clinically appropriate the majority of the time, it's absolutely within the bounds of the standards of care. I have a position statement that is included in every person that I'm writing a letter for's intake paperwork. I find it very important to make this position statement and the clients have told me that it's been very helpful. My statement is, it's my personal and professional opinion that the practice of requiring referral letters for gender affirming procedures is a discriminatory practice that supports the continued disenfranchisement of trans and gender nonconforming community members. I practice from a perspective that there is no one gender journey or narrative and each person's experience is valid. Letters will follow the standards of care and the insurance company's requirements and include the minimum necessary for approval. I absolutely believe this. I tell people this, and this is exactly why I write letters for folks. So the recommended content for referral letters from the standards of care are these. The client's general identifying characteristics, results of a psychosocial assessment, including any diagnosis, the duration of the mental health professional's relationship with the client, including the type of evaluation and therapy or counseling to date, an explanation that criteria for surgery have been met and a brief description of the clinical rationale for supporting the patient's request for surgery, a statement about the fact that informed consent has been obtained from the patient, which I think is ironic. Okay, so that's the criteria. So now we're gonna, I'm gonna show you like actual letters. These are letters that I have written, all right? And I will provide these templates for you. So it's the same format over and over. Um, letters are also a way of advocacy. And so we do advocacy by using the correct name and correct pronoun for people. So in the top for me, my letters, the legal first and last name, that is one of the only places that you will see somebody's legal name if it is different than the name they use. Okay. So this opening statement is sort of my sort of like, why am I qualified to do this? It is suggested that people who are writing letters make some sort of statement about why they are qualified to write a particular letter. Your qualification may be that you've attended a training and that you have written letters in the past. It doesn't have to be robust. It doesn't have to be, you're not trying to convince somebody, you are simply writing a letter to an insurance company and giving them the information they need to know that you are competent to do what you're doing, right? So this is just that opening sentence. And again, I'll send you these letters. You will have these in actual hands. So I am writing this letter on behalf of, this is for chest surgery, I believe, Mr. Last Name, whom I met with to confirm his diagnosis of gender disorder. So um, the majority of people who are seeking surgery are on hormones right? There are exceptions, but most of the time, which means that they have already been diagnosed with gender dysphoria by someone else. So I am rarely providing the first diagnosis of gender dysphoria. I am confirming that diagnosis, which is why I specifically say I am confirming the diagnosis. There'll be an example in which I say that I am um, providing a diagnosis. So in here, you will see the surgical, um, uh, 
the record, the procedure that they are that they are seeking a letter for. Um, so my recommendation for male chest reconstruction surgery as part of his ongoing treatment for gender dysphoria. So these are the further identifying information. So last name, age, gender identity, and assigned female at birth. So this is an advocacy place. Writing this as Mr. Last Name is a 29-year-old woman who identifies as male is not supportive and it's not advocacy. So we write it in every aspect that is identity affirming language the entire time and position the reader to see this person as male who was assigned female. And because they are male, then they need certain interventions to masculinize their body, right? And so everything is organizing around the current, current gender identity. Mr. Last Name has been living his life in a male gender role for over two years. So that's speaking to the current sort of how long have they been living as their affirmed gender? So the current real life experience, and then how long have they been on hormones? So phenotypic gender transition in February, 2020. I use the language of phenotypic gender transition because people are transitioning their bodies. They're not transitioning their genders. That's why I use that language specifically, all right? And then a statement that is about Crosswalks hormone treatment will treat aspects of Mr. So-and-so's physical gender dysphoria. It will have no meaningful impact on his female chest contour. As such, chest masculination surgery is the only intervention that will treat his chest dysphoria. So again, you're sort of positioning of why this is medically necessary for this person. Um, Mr. Last Name is confident in his gender identity and meets the criteria of gender dysphoria. You put the codes. Diagnosis and treatment were conducted in accord with the standards of care put forth by the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. That, in my experience, is a non-negotiable statement. The actually specifically saying diagnosis and treatment were conducted in accord, that tends to be insurance companies will kick letters back if you don't specifically reference the standards of care and WPATH, all right? So however you want to write it, it's really important to know that that, that aspect is a requirement. And then a statement of uh, previous drug, previous or current drug use and significant mental health. Um, so I just ask these questions. Tell me about your drug and alcohol use. Do you have any history of misuse um, or abuse or dependency? This is all self-reported. We have to, we can only go on what they tell us. So for this particular person, uh, reported no history with drug and alcohol abuse and no significant mental health issues. Another required statement, I find no psychiatric contraindications and feel that your client is an excellent candidate for the previously listed surgical intervention. That's significant mental health and no psychiatric contraindications is a sort of a hard line statement that needs to be in there. Um, followed by my opinion of his capacity to give consent and make fully informed decisions about his care. I am not specifying what the care is. I'm not specifying anything about the surgery. I'm saying that based on my interaction, he has the ability in his life to provide consent and understand procedures, right? Because the surgeon needs to consent for the actual surgical intervention, right? So this is an assessment of ability, not assessment of this specific thing. And then my observation about how this will positively impact him clinically. So it will treat positively impact his persistent and wavering gender dysphoria related to his female chest, bring him relief, give him greater gender congruency and add, add great quality to his life. Followed by, 
um, a statement of his recovery plan. It doesn't have to be robust. It doesn't have to be lengthy. My question is, you're going to need help post-operatively, specifically driving home from the surgery and for the handful of days right after. Who is going to be part of your post-op recovery team? And they will say, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my partner, my mom, my friend, whoever it is, that's fine. What you're asking is, do they have a plan? That's what we're assessing. And if they have no plan, then we have a conversation about what do we need to do to come up with a plan? And that's an example that's gonna come up in a letter a little bit later. So this is how every chest masculinization surgery is written, letters written. I change the name, I change the specific information around transition, I change the age, I change the stuff that is specific to that person, but every other component of the letter is just regurgitated over and over and over because insurance companies are looking for the same 10 pieces of information over and over and over again, right? And so every time I write a letter, I don't write an entirely brand new letter. I take this letter as a template and I put my client's information in and speak to my client's circumstance and situation, but I don't rewrite everything every time. And so as I show you more letters, you're going to see that you're going to see the same language over and over again. And then I'll Question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, what if there is a history of drug or alcohol abuse and what might the psychiatric contraindications be? I'm going to get to that. There's a letter example okay. for that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, and so this is a, a example for genital surgery and I combined for both trans mask and trans femme rather than doing multiple. Um, so again, the letter has that opening statement or the position statement of why I'm qualified to do this work. And then again, you'll see the same thing that I'm writing this letter on behalf of the legal first and last name whom I met with to confirm his or her diagnosis of gender dysphoria, assess her ability, his or her ability to provide consent for medical treatment and subsequently give a recommendation for vaginoplasty, metoidioplasty, phalloplasty, whatever the surgery is or surgeries are as part of her or his ongoing treatment for gender dysphoria. If somebody is getting multiple procedures, so like vaginoplasty, for example, and maybe facial feminization surgery, I would include both vaginoplasty, um, facial feminization surgery, um, total hair removal on face, genital, any hair removal. Insurance may not cover that, put everything in there that is related to the procedure or procedures this person is wanting. If it's not included in the letter, it is almost guaranteed that it will not be covered by insurance, right? So it's really important to sort of think about listing every single thing. And, every, and it's whatever they tell you. You don't have to do all the homework on it, right? Um, so it's, it's reported by the client. Um, person's age, their gender identity, their assigned sex at birth, when they began their phenotypic gender transition, how long they've been living in a gender role that's congruent with their identity, all self-reported, okay? Again, the diagnosis and the statement around the standards of care and WPATH, statement on history or drug and alcohol use or mental health issues, the consent statements, and then a statement about how this surgery or surgeries will impact this person's gender dysphoria. So you'll see that it's the exact same in the previous letters. And then a statement on the support network, all right? So this is an example, writing letters for non-binary folks. 
Um, it's really important that we have a capacity to write letters that are affirming of all gender identities, including those that are non-binary or agender who are seeking medical intervention. So <clears throat> the contents of the letter are, are going to be the same, the opening statements, um, the uh, who you're writing the letter for. For people who are non-binary, um, I will put that it's on behalf of the legal first and last name, um, who uses and then they give me a different name or if they use their legal first name, whatever it is they use that is identity affirming. And then I say, which is how I will refer to them throughout the remainder of this letter. Because I don't want anyone to have an experience where the letter that I am providing is not affirming of their identity. So I remove all of the pronouns and I change them to they, them, theirs, non-binary pronouns. And instead of, um, male chest reconstruction surgery, maybe I will choose chest masculinization. I will use non-binary language as much as I possibly can. Some of these procedures are seen as very binary. And so sometimes we have to work with that a little bit. Um, but every other aspect is the same in the sense of the content. So blank is a 24 year old individual as opposed to man or woman who was assigned female at birth, non-binary program, um, but, pronoun have been living in a gender role congruent with their identity since they were whatever. It's not up to me to decide or determine when they did that, what that means. It's they've been living in a gender identity. If it's non-binary, but has a feminine or masculine presentation, that's still their authentic gender identity. That's when they started doing that. For um, some people it's been since childhood, maybe they were gender non-conforming in expression since childhood, but it wasn't connected to like and a social transition as we understand it, that's still true that they've been living their authentic self since that particular amount of time. The statement of criteria for gender dysphoria, the diagnosis, statement of drug and alcohol history, um, and then comments on my opinion around how they will be impacted by this surgery, okay? It's all the same redundant over and over and over again. And then obviously, you know, if you have questions, please reach out to me, right? Hysterectomy, um, and this is gonna be true for, I don't know if I put an orchiectomy in there or, or not, but anything that is removing the gonads, there's some specific language. Everything else is going to be the exact same opening statement, uh, the description, um, the diagnosis, right? The statement of psychiatric contraindications, the specific piece around hysterectomies or orchiectomies is that you have to include a statement around they understand that this procedure will render them infertile and they have the capacity to make a decision about that, right? That there is, um, there's a lot of, we have a lot of feelings in our society, particularly for people assigned female at birth around them uh, carrying babies and reproduction right, on, on either side of it. And so insurance companies will do a hard no, a hard rejection if they think somebody is of childbearing age and are going, this procedure is gonna render them infertile and it's seen as an elective procedure. So in letters related to hysterectomies and orchiectomies, probably more specifically hysterectomies, this statement that you have talked to them and they know they will be infertile. Every single person I say this to, they sort of look at me like seriously, right? And it's like, I, in order for me to say that you know that, I have to say it to you and you have to say it back to me that you know that. And then we've completed that task. I can't just assume they know that, 
even though they almost always know it. Um, so quick question from Andrea, how often are you actually contacted in regards to the letters you write? Do any doctors or insurance agents con No. Um, I, there's been two times that I've been contacted um, asking for more information around letters. Um, it was LA Care wanting me to make a, make a statement about drug and alcohol use, which I used to not do. And then the other time was um, the person had changed their name on their insurance, their legal name, and, and the letter they had for me was older, and so it had a different name. And so they only asked that I that confirm that it was the same person and write a letter that had matching identifying information. Otherwise, I've had no issues. Um, okay. To someone, I, I can't see anyone, so if you want to say something, ask a question, you can just go for it. Okay. So the statement on why I think this surgery is helpful. So it's all the same thing over and over again. Facial feminization surgery. So FFS is frequently denied coverage. It is, it is one of the most overt discriminatory practices as it relates to trans healthcare surgical care um, that almost every procedure that a trans mass person wants will be covered. Um, and facial feminization, which is a huge issue for a lot of women, um, will is frequently denied by insurance companies. So in a letter like this, um, I write a more robust letter. So this is an example of that. Beginning is the same as it always is. Um, so this is a person that I actually was an ongoing client. And so I specified that I have been meeting with her for at that time, about two years. Um, I make a comment about how long she's been leaving, living in a female gender role based on what I have seen and what she's told me. Um, and that's when she started cross-sex hormone treatments. However, I include that um, despite being on hormones for this amount of time, she still has masculine facial features and that she is often misgendered as male, creating a traumatic emotional and psychological harm and endangers her life. I know this because I know it, but I would also, you know, you could look it up and you could cite it, that transgender women who are identifiable as trans are at a disproportionate and severe risk for verbal, emotional, physical, and sexual harassment, and sometimes homicide, right? So it's really important that we include the realities of if somebody is denied this procedure, how is it going to actually impact their life um, in sort of personal ways, but also for trans women really overt, physical, traumatic, violent ways. Um, I see the questions, I'm gonna go through this and then I'll pop back to the, and answer those questions. So this is an added piece of, um, and if you're writing letters for facial feminization surgery, you are more than welcome to just take this. I've done this research um, and I know uh, I can provide the, the site or the citations for it. So I add in here a statement from WPATH um, around the specific language of being cosmetic or elective, which facial feminization surgery is often referred to as cosmetic. Um, and so putting in there that they see these procedures not as optional, but as meaningful and to be understood as medically necessary for the treatment of the diagnosed condition. Um, I also add in there specifically that facial feminization surgery is to feminize masculine features to more feminine ones. And the goal of facial feminization surgery for women is not to enhance already feminine features. 
that is the delineating factor between cosmetic. Cosmetic procedures enhance features that already exist. Facial feminization is not enhancing existing features, it's changing features entirely. And so if we reorganize and position it that way, that this is not enhancement, that's specifically what makes it not cosmetic or elective. And then I provide a statement from the clinical evidence for gender reassignment surgery study conducted by the trans medicine model NCD working group um, that talks about the facial cues um, to provide further evidence of why this is medically necessary for, for trans women. And then it takes me back to like hormones, how long you've been living in that particular, you know, gender role, et cetera, right? So for this letter, you, I just add more because I know that there's a higher rate of denial for facial feminization surgery coverage with insurance companies. So one of the things that you may also be asked to do is write appeal letters um, for somebody who maybe submits for facial feminization surgery or body feminizing and they get denied. You may be asked to write a secondary, more robust letter or maybe you will be writing um, an appeal letter and you have not participated in the first round of writing letters for folks. So this is an example of how the language that you would include. So opening is the same, um, you know, where you're writing on behalf of your client or if you're just meeting with this person to confirm their diagnosis, social transition, um, and, and then a statement about their dysphoria, specifically about the procedure that has been denied. So for this person, she has suffered significant physical dysphoria from her masculine physique, leading to her experience of social anxiety and depression. Her physical body dysphoria has significantly impacted her life and has kept her from moving forward in many areas, right? So talking about the medical necessity of it. And then a statement about um, the insurance for this particular procedure was denied. Um, so what this was is they approved many, everything but the trunk portion of the liposuction, um, which meant that it, it ultimately meant that she couldn't have any of the procedure because without the trunk, trunk liposuction, it would have created a oddly shaped body and her surgeon was unwilling to do that. Um, so make a statement from WPATH again, because insurance companies lean on WPATH and the standards of care for essentially everything transition related. Um, and you can look these up, you can sort of Google statements, standards of care, and then whatever procedure, and you can find many of these quotes that you can include in your letters. Um, and then this is just more sort of evidence. Dr. Deschamps Brawley is a well-known surgeon for um, trans women and so Things, statements that he's made uh, are often pretty effective as he's seen as sort of an expert in this particular area. And again, you, you know, you'll have all of these templates. And then Miss um, So-and-so continues to be misgendered as male and presents a clear danger not only to her psychological health, but to her physical safety as well. Trans women who are identifiable are disproportionate, the same thing that you saw from the facial feminization. And then I'm hoping you will understand the importance of this intervention for this young woman with so much future potential. Please feel free to contact me. Um, if you all are writing appeals or you need other templates, I'm happy to send. I have multiple templates for multiple appeals. Um, I'm happy to share with anyone anything that you may need. 
substance use are unstably housed, right? So again, I'm, I'm just cutting out the beginning thing now. So you still have the opening, but then you're following up with, I'm writing this letter on behalf of so-and-so um, to confirm her diagnosis. So all the same, this person happened to be 60 years old, um, was assigned male at birth. She transitioned over 30 years ago, confident in her gender identity and identified as female since she was a child, five years old. Um, she does meet other criteria for gender dysphoria. And then I say, um, that she has a history of drug dependency and reports being clean and sober for over 10 years. While she has struggled with overall stability in her life, including experiencing homelessness for a period of time, she has been engaged in multiple levels of support for the last two years and has been stably housed in subsidized housing. This is all self-reported, right? I, so one of the questions that I saw, it's a good time to answer it, is um, I do not access records. Uh, I, I, I just, it's not necessary. In my opinion, it's not necessary. Um, what people report to me is what I'm gonna go with. And, and there's been one time where somebody um, was clearly presenting differently than how they were talking, or there was a mismatch in my experience of their mental health and what they were telling me. Um, there was a p difference between their substance use and what they uh, were telling me. Um, and so we had just like a really honest exploratory conversation. Uh, and ultimately I said, um, I'm unable to write your letter right now. Here are some additional things that I need. And, and once we can do that, like if I can have a collaborative conversation with somebody else to get a better understanding of what's going on or meet with you, you know, for a few more sessions, she didn't want to do either of those things. That's pretty rare circumstance. Um, but, but otherwise people, if they've made it all the way um, to my office and, and I'm the first hoop to get to surgery, there's so many other points of contact um, they, I don't think that this, this low level should be the initial barrier for them getting access to what they need. Um, surgeons, when they're doing their informed consent, they also have to explore recovery plans. They also have to explore, um, competence. They have to explore all of those things. And somebody who's precariously housed right now may not be precariously housed in two years when they're finally up for surgery. Cause there's like a two year time period between when they get their first letter and actually get surgery. Best case scenario is six months to eight months. And so I'm gonna report on what's happening right now. That person may be differently housed at that time. Um, oftentimes when I write a letter for somebody, by the time they come up for surgery, they need a new letter because my original letter is expired. It's another opportunity for me to be like, any changes, any changing in your housing, any changes in your mental health, any changes in your substance use. And by that time, I already have a rapport with that person that um, there's a higher likelihood that they're gonna report honestly uh, because they already know that I've given them the letter the first time. Um, almost all things can be worked through. Almost all things can be accommodated. If as providers, we're willing to work with the person to get them connected to the resources in order to, to get the supports they need. Um, I'm sorry, I have one follow-up question on that. So then in your letters, what would happen if you put um, that Ms. or Mr. So-and-so reports that they had such and such surgery on these times, as opposed to just saying that, as opposed to not saying that it was per um, the person's report? Surgeries? Specific? Or whatever the history is that one could verify. I was just wondering because most of most of the letters you've shown us don't specify that the information you're gathering, don't specify where you're gathering the information from. And I was wondering if you did specify that it was from the person's report, 
would that make the letter less convincing? Um, I think that that by saying that so and so reports, um, I think that the I'm implying that I'm going off of what they have said, and I've um, yeah, I mean it's never it's never been an issue. I've never had any sort of problems with with that. Um, uh, if there was a circumstance in which an insurance company came back or somebody said something um, and asked for more information, you know, I, I would probably figure out. I've had cases where insurance companies have asked me to do things that are outside the what's appropriate and outside the laws and outside the standards of care. And I have simply refused to do that um, and given them information about what is within the standards of care and what what is appropriate and what is legally covered based on um, DMH and, and other mandates. Um, and and then they have recognized that they didn't have accurate information and things proceeded and that person was able to get surgery. So by me saying states and reports, I am implying and I'm stating that this is a first person account and I am not, I'm not doing research and I'm not verifying anything that they're telling me. Um, and I don't believe, I don't believe that I, that I need to, there may be rare circumstances in which I feel like I do need to. So, um, uh, no, there are no assessment measures that can also support measuring for gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is entirely self-reported, entirely self-reported and it's entirely subjective. So if you look at their criteria, they have to meet two of those six and there has to be a duration of at least six months. Um, if somebody reports those things, there, there are no validated measures of the actual, um, uh, diagnosis. There are measures where people can assess like the impact, the relation between dis, um, depression and anxiety, etc. But for actual dysphoria itself, there there are no measures. Um, okay. Follow up question. Sure. Um, going back to the substance use, what if there's active substance yeah. use? Is that a can't write the letter at this time, or was that a conversation? It's a conversation. So I was I met with somebody who. Um, and everyone f defines, I guess, substance use or abuse differently. Um, and so I asked, um, tell me, this is how I always ask it. Tell me about your substance use frequency. What do you use? You know, just kind of give me a snapshot. And this person was like, eh, I drink sometimes. And I was like, oh, what sometimes? I'm mean, like, oh, you know, a few times a week. And I was like, a few times a week, like every day or a few times, like we had to kind of go through the whole thing. And they ultimately got to the place of they are drinking six to seven beers every single day. And, and I said, um, for me, that definition, I would define that as excessive. For me, that's how I would define that. And because I'm writing the letter based on my impression of you, I would then have to include that I feel like you are drinking alcohol in excess. And I'm not saying that that means that you shouldn't get surgery. It doesn't mean that you don't have dysphoria. It doesn't mean any of those things, but I can't put something in a letter that is not truthful. And so our, place here is I can write the letter and I can say the truth as you have told me around your your alcohol use and we can sort of see what happens um, you may get denied or I can give you some resources to get connected to AA get connected to sort of some resources to figure out how to taper back or get in or manage uh, better manage your alcohol consumption when you do you know you have a few weeks under you and sort of kind of getting an idea of what that may look like come back to me and he did, he said, don't write the letter right now. He participated in A for, you know, four or five weeks, six weeks later, came back. He had showed me his little chip. He had been sober for six weeks. 
I wrote the letter saying that he had a history of alcohol use and has been sober for six weeks. It was all actually true. And he went on and had surgery. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie, but I'm also not going to make an issue of something that's not an issue. Um, okay, so, um, so somebody who has a mental health, right? I think this is the thing that is, causes a lot of concern for folks. So everything is the same for this is for breast augmentation and an orchiectomy. Um, she's 33, um, social transition 2017, and been on hormones since 2019. Um, she does meet the criteria for gender dysphoria and reported that in 2002, she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. She told me that she is under the care of a psychiatrist and reports being consistent with her medication for over four years. Um, she also told me that she has a strong support network and reports her mental health is stable and her symptoms are well controlled. Um, that she retains medical and legal decision-making power for herself. And I found no psychiatric conditions. Um, and I said, currently, really important word that I add. I don't add currently for any other person. Currently, in the moment I'm meeting with her, she has the capacity to give consent. I can only speak to this moment, right? And that as she moves through the process, she may encounter periods of time where her mental health precludes her from being able to have capacity to provide consent. I'm not responsible for that. I'm responsible to speak of this moment. If she was my ongoing client, for sure, um, then that would be something that would be an ongoing conversation of you're still moving through the surgery process, checking in around mental health. As somebody who's writing one of the two letters, I'm speaking to this particular moment. Now, based on what I said earlier, they, there's usually such a delay that by the time people come up for surgery, they need a second letter, right? I would, for this particular person, I would meet with them again. I would do reevaluate what their current um, stability is, what's going on with them. If I had concerns, I may ask for release of information to communicate with their psychiatrists or their case managers. Um, I have not had that happen. Um, there have been cases where people um, fell out of the process of getting surgery on their own um, because they did lose housing because they they did go off their medication. Uh, those they're they're going to naturally fall out of the multiple step process of getting surgery because of that, right? And and so I'm like step one of a multiple step process. And if I understand my role in this multiple step process, I don't have to hold the concern about sort of the day of surgery. There's many points of contact, including the surgeon the day before and the day of. So I'm speaking to this moment, right? And that's how I'm managing somebody. I had a woman come in who was, in my opinion, um, clearly experiencing a moment and a world very different than what I was experiencing. I didn't know her at all. Her, her presentation was, um, I mean, it was, it was notable from the get-go. And um, we couldn't track my conversation. I couldn't track what she was talking about. She was referencing things in the room that I didn't see that based on my knowledge were not there. And it was very clear that in this moment, she was not able to provide consent, not just for surgery, but she couldn't even provide consent for the session, right? She was, she was, she was um, incapacitated to that degree. So we talked about the surgery. We talked about what it is that she thought she might want. We, we had an entire session 
and at the end of the session, what I said is, I'm unable to write this letter for you right now. I'm concerned that you don't have all the information that you need and are the ability to retain that information. So let's meet again in a month. Let's check in again. And I committed to be part of this process. She did not like it. She was very upset with me. Um, but again, I couldn't write a letter saying something that was not true. I'm just not willing to do that. And that she did not, in my opinion, have the capacity in that moment to provide consent for anything. And so I couldn't write that. Um, I found out later that she uh, was arrested and um, engaged in mental health and engaged in substance abuse treatment um, and uh, remained stable and was able to have surgery, which is really fantastic. It's a, you know, it was a route that I wish she didn't have to go. But, but again, I mean, I have to stay true to what I'm experiencing in the moment. Um, I'm looking at the chats. Okay. Um, so what I'm going to do is, uh, we have just about seven minutes. I'm not going to, I'm going to roll through a couple of case examples. I'm going to provide some examples of things that maybe people could see as challenging that coming up. These are things that I've actually come up against. So a 76 year old white woman who was assigned male at birth, she has been on estrogen for three months. She presents and lives her life publicly as male. Only her wife and stepdaughter knows that she is transgender. She is requesting a letter of support for vaginoplasty. She plans to cover, she plans to recover in a local Airbnb and hire a nurse for her post-op care and does not plan on telling anyone she was having surgery, including her wife, right? So for some people it would be like, okay, well, she hasn't met the social transition requirement. How does she doesn't have a support network? You know, there would be a lot of red flags that potentially would come up. But the reality is, is that earlier when I talked about access to resources and age, this person's life was situated in a way that transitioning was not an option for her. Socially transitioning as a woman to a woman right now would catastrophically impact her um, financial stability. It would impact her housing stability. It would impact all of her meaningful relationships. There's no need for her to disrupt all of those things because what she needs is to experience a body that's congruent for her and it's not related to outside people. And so we, when I say the standards of care are guidelines, we have to understand that there are gonna be circumstances in which people's lives have needs that require them to, to transition in a way that is different than the standards of care indicate that people should. I wrote a letter for this woman I specified um, a couple of the reasons why she has not socially transitioned. I also made a statement that I didn't think it was, um, I, that it was not advisable based on my interaction with her that she socially transitioned. You know, like I made a couple of observational statements. Um, I, you know, I haven't heard anything. Insurance hasn't kicked back. She hasn't contacted me. There's no indication that at all that, that there's been any issue for this woman with pursuing surgery um, from what I know, but this could be an example of when people are not socially transitioning or doing their transition in a way that we sort of conceive people are doing it. How do we write those letters? Right. So this person, 62 year old white woman assigned female at birth. She presents as a woman uses she, her pronouns and identifies as a lesbian has no plans to socially transition. She's seeking a letter of support for specifically a radical mastectomy under the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. She has never been diagnosed with gender dysphoria before, although she states, if this sort of thing was an option when I was a kid, I would have jumped on it. Reports diagnosing herself with autism, 
about 10 years ago. Okay, so access to information and resources. This person is telling me that when she was younger, if there was an opportunity for her to have chest surgery or transition, she would have jumped on it. At 62, based on her life, where she grew up, her family circumstances, it was not an option. She's finally making her way to this now at this age. It doesn't mean that she doesn't meet the diagnostic criteria. It means her pathway and her language is based on the information she has access to. When we talked about what does a radical mastectomy mean to her? What is it that she's wanting to accomplish? She said, I want a male appearing chest, right? And so I said, if you had a radical mastectomy, but you did not have nipple replacement or you had a very noticeable mastectomy scar, is that what you want? Absolutely not. I want a male appearing chest. And so it was a language issue. She wanted the very, what she wanted fits under the criteria of gender dysphoria and that label, but she didn't have the language for it. So that's sometimes the work that we need to do with people who are presenting and maybe they're using language that seems different than what we think we're going to be writing a letter for. Have an exploratory conversation. If she would have said to me, I don't want a male appearing chest. I just don't want boobs because boobs are inconvenient. I can't deal with them, which I've had those people. I say, I absolutely, I cannot write a letter for you saying you have gender dysphoria. I can't do it because based on what you're telling me is different than gender dysphoria. You want to pursue having surgery because you don't like a particular part of your body, but it's not related to an incongruent gender identity. And so there are times that you're going to have to say no to people, but it's not based on your perception about them doing their gender right or wrong. It's based on what it is that they actually are wanting and needing and what the issue is they're trying to address. A 20 year old Latinx woman assigned male at birth. She is not on hormones and reports no interest in being on them now or in the future. She's seeking a letter of support for vaginoplasty, facial feminization surgery, and breast augmentation. She reports being unemployed and without insurance. Upon further inquiry about her plans to pay for surgery, she reports that she earns money as a sex worker. She states that she has no family support and that her girls will help her with her post-op care. Right, okay. So one of the things that I ask people is what insurance plan do you have? What surgeon do you plan on going to? Sort of helps me understand what they know and kind of the starting point. When somebody's like, I don't have insurance and I'm unemployed, it's the next reasonable question for me is like, tell me more about your plan then, right? Because you're planning on having a surgery that is 60 to 70, $80,000. And I'm just curious to understand how you're going to get there, right? That this has nothing to do with people's gender identity. This is about understanding their plan. So this person has the financial resources and she has the community. So I get to write the letter with all the same criteria, answering all the same questions. I don't in any other letter say this person is full employed full-time as a programmer. This person's employed full-time as a bank teller, as a doctor. I don't specify anyone's job in any other letter and I'm not gonna specify how this person earns money either. It's none of anybody's business, right? And so this is that place where you write the minimal amount necessary to get the most of what that person wants. If this person has the financial resources to pay for surgeries, and she can provide consent and she has gender dysphoria, then that's, that's, all, that's, all I, that's all I need to know. For her, it was really important that right now having a penis is really important to her work because if she had a vagina, then it's a different sort of area of work for sex work for her. And so getting a vaginoplasty and getting on hormones because hormones could impair genital function is something that's down the road, right? And so we have to sort of meet people where they are with their transition. 
Um, so this is the last one because this one was a significant one. 18 year old Asian woman seeking a letter of support to, based on what she said, repair her birth defects. She reports being on estrogen since she was 13, but is unwilling to state where she gets her hormones or her care. She is unable to provide a transition history stating it does not pertain to her. She repeats numerous times throughout the session that she is not a transsexual and does not want the word transgender written anywhere in the letter. She begins to display signs of anxiety when I tell her that I need to assess her for a diagnosis of gender dysphoria for me to provide her with a letter. While crying, she begs me to please write the letter. She permits me to include gender dysphoria, but pleads me for me to not use the word transgender or transsexual. Ultimately, what this came down to is that this woman had such significant internalized transphobia that she had distanced herself entirely from that experience and had um, reframed her experience as a birth defect um, and did not identify as transgender or transsexual, right? So it was a lot of work and we had to make our way and do a lot of compromise. Ultimately, I had my non-negotiables. We had to figure out where to meet in the middle I provided a letter for her that met the requirements that I felt um, good about, that I felt solid and, and ethical about, um, and that met as many requirements that she had or requests that she had, um, and she was able to get surgery. How people navigate their identity and how they talk about it is not my business. It's not my job. Um, I mean, I would love for her to engage in care so that she could create a different relationship with her experience and her identity, but she was coming to me for a letter and I need to be respectful of what people are coming to me for. That's my email. By all means, please feel free to send me an email with questions. If you're meeting with people and you are stumped or you need support, um, I'm happy to provide that support to you. I am really, really available for ongoing support and questions, um, including right now. Uh, and will there be additional training support available in the future? I'm 100% I'm available for it. I don't have the answer, um, but I think that it's it would be an option for sure. And if you get stuck or you need more templates or you need more um, templates for like children or youth, accessing blockers, accessing hormones, et cetera, reach out to me and I'm happy to send those things to you. So. If you all, between now and when you are feeling ready to start writing letters, you are more than welcome to send people to me. I will write letters for people. Every Tuesday, all day Tuesday, I write letters. I'm happy to do it. Um, I work in collaboration with somebody else. I'll be the first letter, I'll be the second letter. I don't really care. Um, so while you all are in transition to do this yourselves, please lean on me as a, as a resource if you would like, if it was helpful for you. Thank you all for for coming. I know that you could have been a variety of other places and doing other things. So I appreciate that very much. All right. Take care.